Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. In the last episode, I talked about the theory that Mr. Borden, with his background as a cabinet maker, may have built a secret hiding place in the house at some point after he purchased the property in 1872. I didn't say how Lizzie may have learned of it. It's possible that he told his daughters and his wife that there was this secret hiding place and shown them how to access it. Or he may have been in the process of opening it or closing it when Lizzie happened to surprise him, come across him, and learned that way. Another point I wanted to make about this possible explanation for where the murder weapon ended up and where the bloody clothes ended up being concealed is that Holmes often drew on his knowledge of other criminal cases when he was trying to come up with theories or make sense of a set of facts, particularly if the facts on their face appeared to be, as he would say, outré or unusual. And he's often referring to other cases. He'll say, oh, that's reminiscent of an incident in St. Louis in 1856 or Frankfurt in 1879. There are two cases in the memoirs. One is actually the adventure of the Norwood Builder, which is how Watson and Holmes met the attorney, John Hector McFarlane, the attorney who sent all this paperwork. In the adventure of the Norwood Builder, the villain in the case who was trying to get Mr. McFarlane convicted on a trumped-up murder charge, he had built a secret hiding place for himself in the house. And then I can think of another chapter of the memoirs or another section of the memoirs entitled The Sign of Four, in which a treasure has been hidden in a part of the house that involves the use of a false ceiling. So having had these types of experiences himself and probably having read about them in the context of other cases, because Holmes was a student of crime and he read about the facts of other crimes, based on all that, he may well have found a secret compartment. He would have brought in a cabinet maker. If he'd been the one in charge of search that day, he would have brought with him someone who was a really top cabinet maker and said to him, at any place in the house where you think someone might have created a secret hiding place and take as much time as you need to go over that. Okay, so let me move on. One thing that's interesting that I forgot to mention about the Saturday search is that at one point when they got down to the basement on Saturday afternoon, close to the end of the search, Fleet and Seaver are going through one of the rooms in the cellar and Fleet takes down the box and shows the hatchet head to Seaver. He takes it out and shows it to him. And apparently it didn't occur to Seaver that this might be the murder weapon. And again, despite seeing it for a second time in a matter of three days, Fleet didn't think that it was important. He didn't show it to Hilliard. He didn't bring it down to the police department. So at that point, Mullaly, Fleet, and Seaver had all seen this thing, and none of them thought that it was worth bringing down to the police station. It wasn't until Medley found it on Monday. Yes, that same Medley who claimed to have been the first one up into the loft of the barn on Thursday. He found this thing independent of Fleet when he was searching the cellar on Monday. And when he found it, he went straight to his supervisor, Captain Desmond. Desmond looked at it and said, take it down to the station right now. They wrapped it up in newspaper or some type of paper and Medley brought it down. 
And the marshal put it in his trunk, which is where he kept evidence, apparently. And I can't help thinking of the toy box I had when I was little. It was a big wooden box, and I think it was Hilliard's toy box. And he just threw it in there, and when he felt like playing with things, he'd open up the toy box and take things out and pretend he was running around with a hatchet or whatever. The only reason that this handleless hatchet even comes to light, that we even know about it, is that at the end of the probable cause hearing, which was like a five-day hearing at the end of August 1892, somebody, I don't know if it was the defense attorneys or the expert medical witnesses or the judge, but somebody says to the police, what about the rest of your evidence? What other physical evidence do you have? And it's about time you made it known to us. And I think It may have been precipitated by the fact that the expert witnesses, the medical specialists, had testified at that point that they'd had the opportunity to match up the shingling hatchet with the wounds and that the shingling hatchet was not the murder weapon. That and the fact that Professor Wood had determined that the shingling hatchet did not actually have blood on its surface, that it was rust. And at that point, it was back to square one. And then I suppose Hilliard said, oh, well, there's this hatchet head you might want to look at. So that's how the thing actually came to light. And the last thing I'll say about it is that apparently on August 25th, which was the first day of the probable cause hearing, and which was the day that Dr. Dolan testified, the day that he started his testimony, Hilliard showed him the hatchet head. And despite seeing it, Dolan said nothing about it at the probable cause hearing. And apparently Dolan at that point was still thinking that it was the shingle hatchet or the shingling hatchet that was the murder weapon. So I've covered those odds and ends. Let me move on. I just want to say one other thing about Jennings that I find interesting. I told you that he was hired by the sisters maybe as early as Thursday, certainly by Friday. And I don't know whether the sisters were thinking about this at the time, but it was fortuitous that they did hire Jennings, especially if he had had any discussions with Mr. Borden about a will or about estate planning. If they had not hired Jennings, if they had bypassed him and hired some other attorney, and they ended up having three attorneys on the team by the time this went to trial in June of 1893, Jennings was just one of three attorneys representing Lizzie at that point. If they had picked somebody besides Jennings or if they had just gone with these other two attorneys and left Jennings out of it, in theory... Knowlton may have been able to bring Jennings into court and he might have been able to force him to testify about any discussions he may have had at any time with Mr. Borden regarding his thoughts on his estate and on a potential will. That isn't entirely clear. It's possible that Jennings may have been able to claim that this was privileged because in theory, What a client tells you in confidence remains privileged even after that client has died. But having said that, there may be exceptions, particularly in in something like a murder case. And often the law has to balance competing goals. You want to protect confidential information as much as possible. On the other hand, if there's a compelling interest in revealing that information, if the person who made those statements privileged statements to an attorney is dead. And if the purpose of getting that information from the attorney is to try to determine who killed the person that made the statements, it's possible a court might say, in those circumstances, I'm going to make an exception. These are such extreme circumstances 
the stakes are so high that I'm going to require the lawyer to reveal this information. And Jennings would not have wanted to be in that position, even if it wasn't his fault. And it wouldn't have been his fault if he had been forced to disclose any conversations he may have had with Mr. Borden on that subject. It still would have looked bad. It's the kind of thing that people remember. They hold against you. Oh, that's the lawyer that spilled the beans about what his client told them. And it doesn't really matter that Jennings might have been forced to do this. It's just not comfortable for an attorney. An attorney never wants to be in that position. And he certainly doesn't want to be in a position where, by revealing confidential information, this leads to the conviction of other family members for murder. So, by hiring Jennings, I think this foreclosed any possibility that Knowlton would be able to get this information about conversations concerning a will or concerning estate issues. Because at that point, once he's hired by Lizzie, Jennings can say, I can't reveal anything because that would be detrimental to my current client, Lizzie. So I think this was actually fortuitous for both Jennings and Lizzie. And that's, of course, assuming that Mr. Borden had ever had any discussions with Jennings about his thoughts regarding his estate. And that's a big if. So let's go to Saturday night. The search was completed around 6.30. I don't think the police found anything interesting. They claim that they searched the entire house from top to bottom, literally from the roof down to the cellar. They went into every trunk. They went into all the closets. They had access to everything. When necessary, Lizzie and Emma gave them the keys or showed them how to open trunks. There, were, there was a trunk with a tricky locking mechanism. So the police were satisfied that they had searched everything they could possibly think of. And I believe they lifted rugs up and looked At floorboards, I think they turned some furniture over to see if there was any evidence that the furniture had been cut open and sewn back up to hide something like a hatchet. They did a pretty thorough search, I believe. And so the search was done, they found nothing, and they left. And they said something to the effect of, we searched this place as well as we could have short of taking the walls apart, or something to that effect. So at that point, Maybe Lizzie and Emma felt like they were in pretty good shape, or I should say Lizzie. Maybe Lizzie felt like things were looking okay. But within about an hour, Marshall Hilliard came back with the mayor, Mayor Coughlin. And the mayor was the equivalent of the commander-in-chief in terms of the police force in Fall River. He was the person who they answered to. So if the mayor wanted answers to questions on the investigation, Hilliard had to give them to him. And the mayor had the authority to hire and fire the police chief or the marshal. I think they had a pretty good working relationship. But Coughlin, the mayor, was kept informed throughout this investigation. So Coughlin and Hilliard go over with some other officers to the Borden home around 7 or 7.30 on Saturday, August 6th. And the mayor notices there's a big crowd in the street. There's a crowd that's been there all day because this was the day of the funeral. There was a big crowd early in the day. There have been crowds on the streets, crowds on the sidewalks ever since the murders were made public in the late morning or early afternoon, two days earlier. So the mayor tells Hilliard to have his officers disperse the crowd because it makes him a little nervous. And they go in and they have a meeting with Emma, Lizzie, and Mr. Morse. The mayor does the talking, and what he says is, 
I would like all of you family members, the Borden family, to remain indoors for the time being. I don't want any of you going out. I don't think it's really safe. If you do need to go out, you've got to tell us so that we can give you a police escort. And when somebody objected, probably Lizzie or Mr. Morse, and said, why? What about the mail? Or what about this? Or what about that? The mayor said, get somebody else to do it for you. And as to why, I told you, I don't think it's safe. And then he said to the sisters, ask your uncle. He was in some jeopardy when he went to the post office yesterday or earlier today. And somehow this led Lizzie to think there was more to what the mayor was saying, or more there was more going on than the mayor was, was telling them. And Lizzie said, wait a second, are you telling us that anybody in this household is suspected of committing the crime? And the mayor tried to put her off, and Lizzie asked again. She may have even asked a third time. And finally, whether it was the second or the third time, the mayor said, frankly, Miss Borden, you're the suspect. Emma said something strange at that point. She said, we've tried to keep it from her as long as possible. So obviously, Jennings had figured this out. It was clear to Jennings, whether the police had told Jennings or not, Jennings either knew it directly from the police or had figured it out and had apparently discussed this with Emma. And Emma didn't want Lizzie to know, didn't want this pressure on Lizzie, but now it was out. 7, 7.30 on a Saturday night, two days after the murders, the mayor was telling Lizzie, you're the prime suspect. And Lizzie said, take me now. I'm ready to go any time. Something to that effect. I'm ready to go. If you think you can prove it, take me. Nobody arrested her. That wasn't what happened that night. But it's important because this was the time, the incident, where Lizzie was informed directly that she was the prime suspect and where the family was informed directly that she was the prime suspect. Now, the reason this is important is it leads to certain consequences. And one of those is that the following morning after breakfast, Alice Russell walks into the kitchen while Emma is washing up. They've Everybody's eaten. Alice had left the kitchen. Mr. Morse had left the kitchen. I don't know who had been coming and going, but it was breakfast was done. Emma was doing the washing up because, remember, Bridget had quit. She was gone. So the Bordens were cooking and cleaning for themselves. Alice walks in, and she sees Lizzie holding a dress standing by the stove. And just as Alice walks in, Emma looks over her shoulder and says to Lizzie, what are you doing? And Lizzie said, oh, I'm going to burn this old dress. It's got paint on it and it's soiled and it's faded and it's no use. It's just junk. I don't want it anymore. It's not worth keeping. I'm going to burn it. I think at that point, Alice said to Lizzie, Lizzie, that's not a good idea. I wouldn't let anybody see me do that if I were you. Now, obviously, Alice is saying that because, first of all, the police are stationed at every corner outside the house. So Alice is thinking it's possible a police officer could look in, in theory, and see Lizzie about to burn a dress. But also, Alice is thinking you shouldn't be burning any dresses at this point. It's not a good idea. Lizzie doesn't say anything. It's reminiscent of when Bridget said to her, as she was about to start washing the windows, you can lock the door if you want, or if you don't want to, you can leave it unlocked. It doesn't matter to me. Lizzie, again, doesn't say anything in response. And Alice turns and leaves because she doesn't want to see what is going to happen. 
Emma claims that when Lizzie told her in this exchange that I've just described, Emma claims that when Lizzie said, oh, I'm going to burn this old thing, it's soiled, it's got paint on it, Emma said, good idea, you should. I'm all for it. Go ahead. So we have every reason to believe it was burned. And when asked to describe the dress later, after Alice finally came clean, she said it was a Bedford cord which is a cotton dress. It was light blue. It was a cheap house dress, and it had a blue diamond pattern on the blouse. It's pretty clear that if Alice was telling the truth, if she had an accurate memory of what she saw and that her description was truthful, this was the dress that Mrs. Churchill claimed that Lizzie was wearing the morning of the murders. This is not the dress that Lizzie turned over to the police. Lizzie said she hadn't been wearing this dress on the morning of the murders. Let me say one last thing about Mrs. Churchill. Even though I told you that Mrs. Churchill's evidence was not 100% certain, she hedged a bit. At the same time, when she was done describing this dress, which apparently was the one that Lizzie burned, when she was done describing that under oath, Mr. Knowlton picked up the Bengaline silk dress, which was a dark navy blue, and he said to Mrs. Churchill, is this the dress that Lizzie was wearing that day? Just so there was no confusion. And Mrs. Churchill said, no, I did not see her in that dress on the day of the murders. So between describing the dress that apparently got burned on Sunday and saying that the Bengaline silk dress was not what Lizzie wore that day, I think there's pretty strong evidence that the dress Lizzie burned was probably the dress that she had worn earlier that day. And of course, you've got to wonder why. Why would she do this? If she had nothing to hide, why would she burn this dress? The prosecution's theory was that having heard the night before that she was the prime suspect, Lizzie decided it wasn't safe to keep this dress. She had withheld it from the police. She had turned over a dress that she knew was not the dress she had worn on Thursday, but she didn't want this dress in the house. She wasn't sure whether or not the police would come back and search again. She didn't know whether someone else would turn it over to the police. She didn't want it around because there might be some blood on it. Even though she might not be able to see any blood on it, she didn't want to take the chance that it be sent to a chemist, a professor of chemistry who could work magic with his microscope and find evidence of some microscopic blood spatter on the dress. It wasn't safe. That's why she burned it. What's also interesting here, let's follow this evidence up for the next day or two and beyond. Alice Russell was still loyal to Lizzie. Alice Russell was still loyal to both sisters. Clearly, Emma did not want Lizzie to get in trouble over this. I mean, that goes without saying. I've told you what Emma testified to at trial. She said, oh, this dress was hanging in the clothes closet when Fleet and Seaver searched it on Saturday An hour and a half, two hours, three hours later, there it is on a hanger in the clothes, walk-in clothes closet. They saw it. They're just too stupid. They were such morons that they didn't know what they were looking at. But Alice Russell turns on Lizzie. And this is how it happened. To begin with, on Monday, the following day, Alice Russell was still staying with the Bordens. 
Jennings had hired a detective from the Pinkerton Agency, and the Pinkerton Agency was a famous private detective agency in the United States in the 1800s. It was the Pinkerton Agency that actually tracked Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and chased them out of the U.S. and tracked them down to Bolivia. I don't think they killed them, but they were on their trail. This was in the days before there was an FBI. This is in the days where there was no effective federal law enforcement that went beyond state lines. So Pinkerton filled some kind of role. And rich people would hire the Pinkertons. Companies would hire the Pinkertons. I don't know that they were all that high quality. I think some of the detectives were probably good, but I think a lot of them were second rate. However, Jennings hires a guy named Hanscom, who had been a police officer at some point. I think Hanscom had been drummed out of the Boston Police Department for some reason. I don't know why. But Hanscom is this pompous windbag, full of himself, thinks he's very clever. And he's hanging around Fall River for at least a few days, and he's on the Borden payroll. Jennings is getting Emma and Lizzie to pay for this guy's fees. And Jennings has Hanscom interview Alice Russell on Monday, probably just so they can keep their own records to find out what witnesses are saying and match them up with whatever the witnesses might have told the police. And Hanscom asks Alice Russell whether she's aware as to whether any dresses have been destroyed. Are are the dresses that are currently in the house as of today, Monday, exactly the same as the dresses that were in the house on Thursday? Are you aware of any dresses that have been destroyed, given away, lost, passed on to somebody else for safekeeping, etc.? And Alice tells him, no, I'm not aware of that. And then when she's done talking to him, she goes in to another room where she finds Emma and Lizzie and she confesses. She kind of wrings her hands and says, I just told a lie to your detective and I feel bad about it and I did it to protect you and it just doesn't feel right. And I don't think Alice contradicts Emma's version of what happened next, which is that Emma said, go back in and tell him the truth. We have nothing to hide. So Alice goes back in and tells Hanscom, actually, Lizzie burned a dress yesterday. And so that's the first disclosure Alice makes. Now, she doesn't say anything about it at the inquest, and she testifies at the inquest within a couple days after that. She says nothing about it at the probable cause hearing. It's not until November that she makes a clean breast of it, and she does it, I think, because she has a guilty conscience. And once Knowlton gets that information, he makes sure the grand jury hears it. And apparently, my understanding is that it was this piece of information that was the tipping point for the grand jury in terms of deciding to indict her for murder, that they weren't sure or they hadn't reached a decision and they needed some time to think about it. And then Knowlton got this evidence and added it to what he had already presented. And this is what got them over the line. Here's another interesting thing about all this. Hanscom obviously would have told Jennings. Hanscom was basically working for Jennings. So Jennings would have known probably that day, Monday, the 8th of August, that Lizzie had burned a dress. Now, apparently Lizzie did get paint on this dress. That I'd say the likelihood is that she did get paint on this dress because the dress was made in the spring, probably March or April of 1892. And the house was painted, the outside of the house was painted in May. And Mr. Borden had put Lizzie in charge of the, the painter. Lizzie was choosing the color. Lizzie was supervising the painting. And that it wasn't just the outside of the house. I think the barn was painted. The steps to the house were painted. And I think Lizzie did get paint on the dress within a month or two of it having been made for her. And it was a cheap dress. It was made of really cheap material. 
and it was too long. It was an inch or two longer than it should have been. And so it dragged on the floor. It always dragged on the floor, which meant it got dirty. It was always dirty and it got frayed. But even so, as Knowlton pointed out in his closing argument, why choose that day to burn it? Especially if it appears to be, have been, the dress she wore on the day of the murders. Jennings is not obligated to tell this to the prosecution. In fact, it would be a violation of his ethical duties to Lizzie to disclose this. The prosecution has to disclose exculpatory evidence to the defendant. If there's evidence in their possession, one way or the other, whether it's incriminating or exculpatory, meaning indicative of innocence, either way, they have to disclose it. But a defense attorney and a defendant are not under the same obligation. The only thing they are prevented from doing is lying under oath. They cannot testify to something that isn't true, but they don't have to proactively turn this material over. But this is one more thing that factors in, in my mind, that factors into the decision whether to testify at the inquest, because the inquest starts on Tuesday. This is Sunday. And we'll talk about the inquest, we'll talk about Lizzie's decision to testify, we'll talk about what she said at the inquest. That's what we will be dealing with next weekend. I hope you join me. Until then, take care. Take care.